Welcome to Free Thoughts. I'm Aaron Powell. And I'm Trevor Burris. Our guest today is Andy Matushek. He's a software engineer, designer, and researcher. He helped build iOS at Apple and led R&D at Khan Academy. His current interest is technologies that expand what people can think and do. Welcome to the show, Andy. Hey, thanks for that introduction. Technology has radically changed the way that we seek out and interact with information. Uh, But the methods of formal education, the way that we acquire knowledge, haven't really seemed to change much since the ancient world. Why is that? Yeah. uh, Well, it's it's, it's interesting the ways that that's true and that's not true. When I got started on my, my ed tech journey, maybe seven years ago or so, that was definitely the, the story that I told. You know, there's another common story that uh, the current school system is, is kind of created in Prussia uh, and, and hasn't changed much since then. And, and while uh, that's true to a large extent, it's interesting also to talk about all the ways in which it's not true. So, for instance, um, discussion-oriented classes being uh, highly commonplace in, in, say, like primary and secondary education is, uh, you know, a relatively new emphasis in the last few decades. Uh and uh, so Montessori-like uh, schools starting at the beginning of the, the 20th century have been trying to push their way up through secondary school. Uh, and, and so I, fi- I find these trends promising. I find some of the, the Common Core's attempts to emphasize uh, reasoning and, and argumentation in addition to rote factual and procedural knowledge promising. Um, simultaneously, <clears throat> there are a lot of entrenched forces that, that make it difficult for uh, these types of reform or progressive-minded uh, education policies to move quickly. Everything has to kind of move together. Very large uh, institutions consisting of many parts, uh, many different disciplines, from the, the teachers on the ground to uh, the administrators who have certain expectations, backgrounds, and training, uh, to the funding sources for the, the schools, which are often dependent on certain practices and, and assessment behaviors, to, yes, those assessments, which uh, for the Common Core rollout, for instance, like one challenge is that um, the the assessments are not as progressive-minded yet as some of the standards in the Common Core. Uh, and so t- teachers are caught between a, a rock and a hard place there. Uh, likewise, parents uh, can cause difficulty uh, as well as uh, opportunity either direction. Either they can be like more progressive in the classroom and trying to like drag everybody to the future, but just as commonly, the, the parents... Uh, often express concern when, when their child is learning something uh, in a different fashion than they learned it, um, they can sometimes feel like their child is, is getting a short shrift or is like not being taught properly or something like that. Well, we, we, we have this some weird things that are persistent in our, our at least our public education system and, and some private schools. One that always has struck me as interesting is grouping children by age. Uh, that that one seem it doesn't seem to have been rethought much. Where I'm like, the, the age does not correlate to ability necessarily. Right. It might, it might, but we just sort of do it, and we kind of think that there's no other way of doing it. Like, which I mean, I, I don't know if you've looked into that as a, if there's an alternative way of doing it. We did, of course, used to have one room schoolhouses where right. 15 year olds and seven year olds were together, which actually could have been beneficial. But now we just sort of segment them out, and that's one of the weirdest things about schools. It's one of the only mm-hmm. places in your entire life. That you'll be with people with your as your with your your own age as like a general rule, and, and yeah. so you don't really learn about it, the fact that when you get a job there'll be someone who's fifty and someone who's twenty five and you might be eighteen. <laughs> so I, it's all that's always struck me as weird, and we're not really thinking outside of that box. Mm. <clears throat> yes, there are some reform minded schools uh, which which are uh, kind of taking alternative approaches there using 
uh, grouping children by, say, readiness or, or independence levels, things like this. Um, but uh, one fun thing about this, this question or concern is that it really starts to access what do you actually view school as being for? Uh, and, and for instance, if you view it as being primarily like psychosociological developmental institutions, it's, it's there to kind of like help you grow as a, as a person and relate to others effectively, uh, then maybe it would especially make sense to, uh, to, to group many ages together in, in the sort of one room schoolhouse style model because um, uh, maybe socialization is, is gonna work better uh, in that context. There, there's some evidence of that uh, up to some threshold where things get tricky. Whereas if what you view the goal as is something like, uh, 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 like learning a bunch of skills uh, to, to enable either like future vocational work or um, you know, entrance into the, the great process of, of humanism and discovery, uh, then you might wish to group people by, uh, say, knowledge or capacity or something like that. Ages. Uh, well, actually, an interesting thing that I learned at Khan Academy is that in a typical school, that the smear of abilities in, in a given class is absolutely enormous. And for many teachers, this really is their number one problem. Uh, the most common concern or, or complaint we had when talking to, for instance, middle and high school math teachers in particular, uh, was the absolutely enormous variation uh, in, in their students' capacities, both like conceptually just you know, comfort with numbers, um, as well as just practically their ability to do certain things. And so they have to somehow teach a class that uh, includes students who are nominally or from some standards perspective, two years behind uh, where they're supposed to be, uh, as well as, of course, there's others who are, you know, a year ahead or something. That reminds me of my wife is an elementary school teacher. And when we lived back in Denver, she taught at a, a private school for gifted children. And the way that they handled that, because gifted kids very wildly, was she would essentially write individualized curriculum for each of the 15 or 20 kids in her class. And it was all built around, like, if this kid was really into hockey, she would build the entire curriculum of math and science and history around hockey, Amazing. which was wonderful for the kids. But, like, as the the spouse who saw her working in the evenings, it was rather labor-intensive. <laughs> uh, so it didn't, it didn't scale as well. But... Yeah, although I don't know, maybe maybe it's not that unreasonable. So there are 55 million uh, U.S. K-12 students. Uh, and so if you imagine that uh, a teacher can only support 20 students, which maybe that's an upper limit for, for that kind of endeavor, uh, then you'd need 2.7 million uh, teachers to, to support those students. Um, and maybe that's not that outlandish. Yeah, probably not. One thing I like, I, I've known Aaron for 20 years going back to Denver. And one thing I liked about what his wife was doing as a, as a kid who was really into things like growing up, I think probably all of us were, you know, just get really into dinosaurs or baseball, or I had an obsession with uh, Anne Boleyn. I had some weird obsessions uh, when I was growing up, <laughs> but like, you you know, that kid is sort of, they, they, are, they like to focus a lot on one thing. So she had to, you know, here, how do you teach math through hockey? Well, that's pretty easy. Like, you know, goals, stat statistics, but it's going to be, how do you teach math if the person is interested in um, the human body or something like that? But I think that goes to some of, some of your work where, if you if if you're trying to get understanding, but you go through something that the person wants to understand, as opposed to this sort of transmission model, right? Where it's like so many kids hate school, but they love learning about other things, you know, outside of school. Like you know, even if it's something kind of silly, like Pokemon 
you know, characters or something. Yeah. So like, they, I mean, they can recite I, all 150, but they, you know, exactly. They and their stats. Right? Yeah. Yeah. That was so like a popular topic in the gifted school. <laughs> so how do we, how do we harness those things together? Like people have a passion for learning. I think even people who don't seem to have a passion for learning have that. So how do we get those to kind of meet so they can actually get skills if that's the point of what we're doing here? Yeah. <clears throat> this access is a, a fundamental rift and, and challenge in the, reform education space, uh, stretching back, especially over the, the 20th century, the the challenge that many people have had in trying to, uh, trying to produce, say, student-directed mm, learning environments has often been that they don't quite take it far enough. Uh, so, so one common challenge that we encountered when talking to those types of institutions at Khan Academy was that, like, the teachers really wanted to just support the students in investigating whatever they wanted to investigate, but uh, the the district or the parents or the somethings uh, would eventually uh, get in the way. And this was true even at the the Khan Academy Lab School, which was this this very strange experimental school with without concrete curricula. Um, one common refrain from those teachers was that the parents will talk a big talk about wanting their, their kids to follow their interests and their, uh, their passions. And yet, at the end of the day, when they come in for those teacher-parent meetings, they're like, but my kid's going to get into Stanford, right? Like, <laughs> that is a thing that is very important to them. Uh, so so you, have to, you have to thread this like, multi-institutional needle. Uh, and and no, no one's quite figured out how to do that yet. One other interesting challenge is something that, that John Dewey points out in uh, Experience in Education, which is that, uh, you know, particularly before people have developed their, their, their sense of self and, and a prefrontal cortex, um, allowing uh, such a person or encouraging them to, to do whatever they want in a given moment, it's kind of worth asking if such a person is truly free. Um, if, if a person who is kind of following their momentary whims uh, at, at all times without having developed wisdom, um, is, is that actually less free than a person who's kind of uh, gently guided or shown opportunities they might find interesting in a non-coercive fashion, uh, you know, but, but with like slightly more constraint? A lot of your recent work has been on kind of personal knowledge databases and knowledge synthesis. And I'm thinking about that in the context of what we've just been talking about because that that project is almost by definition like cross-disciplinary. You're trying to take a lot of different fields, a lot of different kinds of knowledge, a lot of different directions and figure out how to synthesize new ideas out of them. But the way that we tend to approach education, particularly at like elementary level or high school, is to compartmentalize. So you're not you're not learning the way that my wife taught, which is we're going to learn about hockey and through hockey, we're going to learn math and science and all that. It's rather you're going to do science and then you're going to learn reading, which is kind of an odd subject in and of itself because reading is just how you approach everything else. It's not its own thing once you've learned your letters. Uh, is that – does that kind of trap us? Like do we need to break down that compartmentalization of disciplines in order to be more effective – Yes, and and actually, this is a place where most of the educational institutional forces are supportive of doing that. Uh, so the Concord actually includes a, a lot of provisions and encouragement uh, for this to happen. 
the the reading standards, for instance, they include standards for speaking and listening uh, that are supposed to be applied to uh, to subjects other than just like your English class, for instance. So in, in order to like uh, achieve the English and language arts common core standards, you actually have to be working on those things in the context of a science class or something because they include standards around like uh, analytical and quantitative thinking. Uh, now, wh- where that's <laughs> met trouble is with some of these forces I discussed earlier, that on, on the ground, it can be very difficult to do this. Like, like as it happens, you have, say, uh, an English teacher and a, and a science teacher, and the science teacher is, is kind of like rewarded and incentivized for the student's performance on the science assessments at the end of the year. Uh, and the, the English teacher is uh, not really rewarded or incentivized uh, or, or even has any feedback or, around how the student performs on, say, like the quantitative uh, speaking and listening uh, type assessments. Uh, so uh, all the teachers I've, I've talked to about this have expressed uh, great difficulty in getting anything to change. And this is much, much more true uh, for the the math standards and the science standards, which, which are still somewhat more nascent, which attempt to be cross-cutting uh, because those require uh, domain expertise that many of the relevant teachers don't have either practically or they may have like an emotional aversion. So trying to bring like number talk into history, for instance, is super interesting. You're going to talk about uh, like means of production, uh, you know, in the 18th versus the 19th century. Uh, actually, looking at those numbers can can really give you a visceral sense for for what happened. But uh, many of the people teaching uh, those types of courses uh, have very strong aversions uh, to to mathematical thinking. Now you've a. Uh... This is going to sound bad, but you've come out against books um, <laughs> in, in some ways, uh, <laughs> or at least you have you have some issues with some ways that some books are thought to be used. Uh, would be the more so. So, what's the problem with with uh, well, especially nonfiction books um, uh, that that you have pointed out? Thanks. Yeah, I, I, sh- I should be clear that uh, this is this is more more a provocation than a criticism. I, I in fact love books, but I, I think it's it's interesting to look at. Um, objects with their purposes in mind, and then to ask how well the object is sculpted to fulfill that purpose. And so if we imagine that in an inf- informational text, for instance, uh, that the aspiration is that a reader is going to somewhat reliably be able to internalize a particular perspective uh, or set of s- strategies, methods, um, even basic facts, it's, it's interesting how little books actually seem to, to do as, as objects, as media, to facilitate that. And it's true also for even things like self-help books. You know, if you read a book about trying to, say, form habits better, uh, like you might sit down and read it. They're usually like really short. So you, you read it in an hour and a half, and then you, like, you close it, and you put it back on your shelf, and you go about your day. And uh, then something might happen uh, which would benefit from one of the ideas in that book. And yet like the author is back on your shelf at home and and is no longer participating. So I'm not really saying this to criticize books as as much as to ask, is it possible to invent media forms which can do the jobs of, say, informational texts or, you know, your self-help book on habit, um, but but which actually, say, participate more deeply or uh, take into account how people think and learn more effectively, things like this? Well, isn't that a TED Talk? I mean, it's like at least part of the point, right? Maybe. I mean, I, I would argue that a TED Talk is, 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 is also quite ineffective. I mean, it, it's interestingly different in that it, it, it may have a, 
say like a visceral or a deep emotional reaction, but but I I'm suspicious uh, how how much long term effect a TED Talk has on a person. Maybe that's what you're saying. You've as as a way to reinvent the book to I think accomplish more of what you're talking about. You've co-authored, I believe, a textbook, an online textbook on quantum mechanics. Can you tell us, so kind of use that as a way to give us a more concrete version of what you were just talking about? Sure. Yeah, yeah. So uh, one one thing that's interesting about very complex topics is that uh, raw working memory uh, can can actually become a barrier very quickly. So if you're, if you're trying to learn, uh, say, a complex topic in economics, and, uh, you know, chapter one introduces uh, a whole bunch of new terms and uh, new approaches. And then chapter two starts trying to put those to use uh, very quickly to, to solve problems. You know, your working memory is, is really quite limited. And you may find that you can't actually keep all of all of those things in mind simultaneously because you've just been exposed to them. Uh, and this may make it difficult for you to learn complex topics, including uh, those like quantum computation. Uh, so what do we know about memory? Uh, is it possible to take advantage of what we know about memory in, in order to try to do better? Uh, that's, that's what this, this book, Quantum Country, is, is exploring. Uh, cognitive scientists actually understand fairly well how to ensure that you'll remember something. Um, this is kind of a familiar thing in everyday life. You know, if, if you hear about something once, then uh, often you'll forget it fairly rapidly. Uh, but, you know, if you hear it again, then, then maybe it'll last a little longer. And then if you hear it again, it'll last a little longer than that. And, and so, so ideally, you actually kind of want to hear about it uh, just as it's maybe likely to fade away each time. And if you do that, you can actually very efficiently, uh, <clears throat> with, with, say, only half a dozen reinforcements over the course of a year, uh, keep something in mind quite reliably. It's just that books don't really um, you know, do, do anything to help you do that. You'd have to be like very diligent and assiduous and make yourself a little planner or whatever. So uh, Quantum Country has that mechanism built into it. So um, as you read, there are these, these little questions, um, almost reading comprehension questions. They're very simple about things that you just read, a little bit like some other online textbooks. But where it differs is that uh, it'll follow up a few days later and you'll, you'll look back at all of those things again and uh, kind of test yourself again on your memory of those things. And for the ones which you still remember, uh, you'll, you'll then test yourself on them again, or quite some time later, say several weeks or a month. And, and then uh, for the things that you're struggling with, you'll, you'll see them again sooner to, to reinforce them. And so uh, after a, a few rounds of this, uh, we found that the readers are able to internalize um, quite reliably, uh, really a, a very large uh, amount of information from this book. So is this like, is it like a, is there an app that comes with it that like Duolingo, like it, it prompts you to answer questions. That <laughs> it sends you an email. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Oh, I can tell. So, I mean, are we, you know, I remember back growing up, there was a lot of discussion and I'm sure you probably know the source of this because we have different education theorists who kind of come through at different times, but there was like the auditory learner, visual learner, like kind of categories that came through, which always struck me as, as a little bit, facile. Um, for me, I always thought I was a, uh, a learner who struck if I, as soon as I kind of grokked it to use, to use the, the stranger in a strange land, like as soon as I kind of got it and I could recombine it in my own head, um, that was the moment that I wouldn't forget it. And I, and I, and I've, I've always thought, I thought that when I was like seven, I kind of realized that when I did a, I came up with a totally different way of doing averages, um, 
that was just different than what I was taught. Like, uh, uh, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't complex or anything. I just was doing it differently. And so, and, and I would never forget it. Like that seems to me to be the, what we should pursue. I don't know how to get there, but like anyone is the moment you understand it, then it's harder to forget, like really grok it. What's, what's actually going on. So like, is, is that part of, of the, the field that you work in? I would like it to be this, uh, this this book as as design, and I should say my, my co-author is, is Michael Nielsen. Our, our approach here is this kind of artificial and formal uh, integration approach. So it's not relying on you using this knowledge to say run some quantum computing experiment, which would be more natural and more pleasant, and uh, probably just just better if you could make it work. Uh, so it's a very interesting challenge to ask, like, can you do something which accomplishes the same outcome as quantum country for people's memory uh, without these kind of artificially constructed review sessions? And my reference there uh, is, is games. Um, they, they are, some of them, the best of them, are so, so, so good at this. The, the, the real challenge with creating these like naturalistic, say, project-based learning environments is that you need to structure the projects in such a way as to make use of the the pieces of information that the student's trying to learn, uh, but not too many new pieces of information at once. Uh, and so in some fields, kind of the obvious first project might actually require that you've internalized dozens of, of key ideas. And so you have to find some way to break it down. Because games are kind of inherently artificial, they, they're very good at doing this. Uh, games like Portal will have you learn like each idea atomically. And people have broken down like the, the learning structures of portal and they're amazing so it, it remains to be seen whether this can be done in general uh for, for topics i've actually been assembling notes on this question but i, I don't uh, don't know how to do it yet <laughs> it seems like what you've described with quantum country like that in order to make that work you had to write a textbook about a very specific topic and bake in a lot of additional stuff into that textbook beyond the text itself, which is places a, a large workload on you as the co-author or curriculum designer or whatever else, which then means that for, you know, it's it's unrealistic that we would have similar sorts of elaborate things for every potential topic. But on the other side of it, it seems like this kind of thing, like say using spaced repetition flashcards diligently, um, as as a student learning whatever topics it is that you're exposed to or interested in in over time you like you're saving yourself a lot of work right like if you can if you can be diligent up front you can then all you have to do is pop into your anki flashcards deck or whatever once a day and just run through them and over time the number of cards you have to look at diminishes as you learn them so you have you save yourself time in the long run, but it requires not just a large time commitment, but almost like making a good version of that flashcard deck requires a something of a deep understanding of the subject to begin with so that you're making the right flashcards. And so it seems like it so much of the way that education works now is the teacher gives me an assigned reading. I know that I'm going to read it. We may discuss it, but like reading it is what I have to do. And I can kind of, it's a concrete thing. And then I know that I'm going to be tested on it and I can study for that test and then I'm done. But this seems to like load a lot more onto the student and in ways that it's not necessarily possible for the student to offload. Is that a problem for this kind of thinking or is there, are there tools we can use to help there? 
Yeah, these these are all open parts of the of the research question. These are good questions. <clears throat> so so quantum country offers up this kind of trade. In fact, this is really the core insight of it. You you referred to spaced repetition. That's like kind of the general name for the mechanism which quantum country is adapting. And um, spaced repetition is is extraordinarily effective. So it's worth asking why don't people use it? The number of people who use it is is very tiny, and yet it is uh, uh, it, it's it really feels quite like magic. Uh, and as you point out, I mean, one of the key reasons is that it's very costly, and it, it is both costly in time and is challenging uh, to make these uh, make these flashcards. Uh, it requires both the domain expertise, which you pointed out, but it also requires um, expertise in this weird medium of making flashcards, uh, which is surprisingly difficult. And it's not even obvious that it's difficult. So a very common phenomenon is that people start trying to do this, and it doesn't seem to work very well. And I think it's because like just this technique doesn't work very well and so they give up, but, but actually it's because their flashcards aren't good. So <clears throat> quantum country's core insight is what if the author creates the flashcards and there's, there's kind of a time trade. Uh, so they have to do a bunch of work up front, but maybe you scale it to tens or hundreds of thousands of students and it makes sense. Uh, there's downsides. Making the flashcards actually is very, very good for your learning uh, because you have to do this like distillation and synthesis of knowledge. Um, and you'll like, spend more time in contact with the material, and it'll be more personal and probably connected to things that you care about or you know, already know about better. Um, but it's, it's an interesting trade to explore. So then the question is, like, what's the right mix? So maybe there's like crowdsourced wiki-style flashcard layers that you put on top of pre-existing texts. Or another way I think about it is um, writing these, these prompts embedded within Quantum Country. Uh, it is still less effort than like writing the, the problem sets, which would normally be in a textbook. And yet authors do write you know, problem sets or exercises in textbooks. So I think the absolute amount of work is not unreasonable that there's just kind of like a uh, <clears throat> getting it off the ground effect uh, challenge. Now, Aaron and I both have philosophy degrees, undergrad and, and law degrees. Um, so and with the Khan Economy stuff and the kind of flashcard or repetition, at least where a question can be asked to you, it seems that they're not easily transported to the humanities in the same way. If you're talking about um, large historical periods and understanding what's going on there, I couldn't, if I got an email that was like, describe the 19th century, I, I mean, in five minutes, that would be a little difficult. Or I mean, I didn't make many flashcards in my philosophy classes um, <clears throat> for, for my test. So, um, is that a totally different, do we have to think about that totally differently and say, you know, this isn't about spaced repetition. This is about uh, conversations maybe. So you really get the ideas of Wittgenstein or Plato or whoever, rather than this kind of other learning model. Right. So I, I, I don't know, <clears throat> first and foremost, uh, but I will say that as an amateur student of both philosophy and history, uh, these types of techniques have been quite helpful. They just look a little different than you might be used to. So, um, First off, it is just helpful to have simple prompts like uh, what is sentimentalism, for instance. Um, but, uh, you know, that, that's not all that interesting. Uh, so once you've been practicing for a little while in philosophy, you, know, you would just know that by way of trying to have debates with people about you know, different philosophers' approaches to problems. And then it, you can do these kind of higher order prompts that are, that are more creative or uh, <clears throat> more comparative by, for instance, asking things like, you know, compare and contrast uh, positivism and uh, existentialism. Uh, 
uh, you know, there's this kind of some interesting overlaps there. What are their similarities? And uh, one interesting thing about that question is that you might find yourself actually giving somewhat different answers over time uh, as, as your understanding develops. And, and so in a way, this prompt is, is playing a different role that I'm also finding very interesting, which is that it's a way of programming your attention. So as, a, as kind of a novice philosophy student, the first time you consider a question like um, <clears throat> the, the difference between those, those two uh, worldviews, uh, your answer might not be very deep. And so you'd almost like to, to program yourself to like return to that question, perhaps not on the same like very tight memory-oriented schedule, but say a couple of times in your first year uh, to see if you have new things to say about it. Um, and so this lets you do that. I've also created, in, in my amateur study of philosophy, uh, kind of creative-oriented prompts uh, with a similar focus on, on kind of programming myself to to practice. And uh, one example would be like, take a, a recent decision that you made and uh, imagine what your, decide what your answer to that decision, your choice to that decision would have been um, if you had taken only a deontological perspective. Uh, how would your answer have changed? And that's very interesting because it definitionally has different answers every time. In this world, though, if we if we shifted entirely to a world where people were using textbooks like the one that you co-authored and were creating decks of cards and programming their attention and all of that, what is the role of teachers? I mean, outside of being the people who write the textbooks and all of that, like, is there a role for teachers in the traditional sense in that world? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I'm a I'm kind of a, a partisan in this sense, and so <clears throat> this will reflect a, a worldview that's uh, not certainly not universally held in the education space. But uh, I view teachers primarily as uh, facilitators. So um, arranging discussion is is I think one of the, the most valuable things that a teacher can do. And it doesn't doesn't really matter how many flashcards a person's practiced. Uh, a a well arranged discussion between them. Um, between experts on essential questions can still generate new knowledge. And so it can definitely generate new knowledge for, uh, for, for children or, or for undergrads. Uh, another, of course, important role well, for a teacher, particularly for young people, is, is uh, just, just facilitating their, their, their emotional, even spiritual, psychological development. And, and then, especially in higher ed, an extremely important uh, role that the teacher has is being something like a, an ambassador for their culture. So if, if you are a professor of philosophy, one of the things that you're doing is like modeling a way of thinking and being in your every word in conversation, and you're, you're expressing a system of values and norms. And that's very difficult to, to absorb from a book. So those are some of the things that I think teachers are still very important for. This morning, I was wandering through your notes, which you've put online at your website, and I encourage our listeners to do that because it's... It's a fascinating experience to go through these linked <laughs> notes. And, and these, are, these are rough working notes, I should clarify. <laughs> well, welcome to Andy's brain kind of thing. Yeah, I would yes. do them. <laughs> it's, I had a lot of fun going through it. But you have I came across this, this line that I wanted you to expand on because both Trevor and I are knowledge workers. We're, we're scholars. Our job is you know learning about stuff, having conversations about it, and writing about it. And, and so one of your notes, you say, athletes and musicians pursue virtuosity in fundamental skills much more rigorously than knowledge workers do, which feels right to me, but I'm not sure why it's right, like why that's the case. Sure. Uh, this, this is 
happily a question which uh, more more talented people than I have also spent some time thinking about uh, Kanders Erickson, uh, one of the, the founders of the field of expertise, uh, thought this question was very interesting. He didn't uh, get very far in, in trying to answer it, I would say, but he, he, he kind of gave one simple answer, which might explain why, and that's that it's very difficult for knowledge workers to do otherwise. Um, there are certain fundamental differences, which, which he characterizes, uh, between the, <clears throat> the types of work, which make it very difficult to engage in what he calls a deliberate practice. Um, so the thing that the athletes and the, the musicians are doing every day is deliberate practice. And a simple way to define that is an activity whose sole purpose is to improve your performance in some particular domain. And so it's interesting that, you know, we knowledge workers, we do stuff all the time that makes us better. You know, we're reading papers, we're like writing that book that pushes us out of our comfort zone or whatever. But the sole purpose we're doing it is is not to improve ourselves. I mean, almost ever. Whereas an athlete like daily is doing activities whose sole purpose is to improve themselves. And so why don't knowledge workers do that? Well, uh, we, we, we quite don't quite know how. So uh, uh, some properties of, of uh, um, athletics, for instance, and, and say, say violin playing um, that, that Erickson talks about. One, it's very easy to very rapidly assess performance, even at a particular subskill. Uh, uh, two, uh, there, there is specific knowledge about the, the teaching and improvement of subskills. So, so there, there's like coaching knowledge. Uh, three, there, there is uh, like a generally uh, well understood and agreed upon kind of standard uh, of like what good is and kind of a curriculum and so on it doesn't exist really for for knowledge workers and um, <clears throat> for there, there's a there's like a culture and community of, of coaches uh, who in these fields are previously eminent practitioners um, so it, it would be as if I don't know like Robert Caro like instead of writing his next Lyndon B. Johnson book you know decided to like spend all his time like teaching the, the next generation of, of great writers or something like that we, we don't quite have that and we, we, we sort of do in, in some small limited cases uh, and, and so on. Um, now, Erickson kind of stopped there. I, I think he's maybe a little more pessimistic than, than he needs to be. I mean, yes, it's true that, that there aren't, I can't specify like a, a complete set of criteria uh, for being a great knowledge worker, but maybe we can agree on things like you need to be able to like collect, synthesize, and distill like a lot of information effectively and update on that information. Like maybe that's just kind of like a core skill of knowledge work in most knowledge work fields. Um, it, it doesn't seem that implausible to me that we could, uh, I don't know, form create some kind of like a game where you have to do that or create some kind of like task or test or something uh, where you have to do that. Uh, and that you could say, assess it fairly rapidly or like find ways to improve. So I, I'm a little more optimistic that that we may actually be able to identify some of the core tasks and, and, and behaviors and, and knowledge work and um, possibly then start trying to improve them very intentionally. I want to take take a step back or step up to, to the 30,000 or 100,000 foot view. Um, uh, now, as libertarians like are critical of state education as a concept, and I don't really don't necessarily want to get into that, but one of the reasons I find it a fascinating question is because it presupposes an agreed upon definition of education, uh, which I think is actually the the rub there where it's like, where we don't, we think we, we even, we think we could say the, you know, the three R's, 
but but you even find disagreement there. Well, how much arithmetic do you need that we have c- calculators in our pocket? We need music. We need art. We need global stewardship. And that there's actually the, the heterodoxy of humans, which is only increasing, uh, is making it even more of a quixotic endeavor that we can collectively define the meaning of the concept of education. Um, so does, does that mean that we should be pulling back or at least diversifying, especially as we become more diverse in our education as opposed to make it monolithic, which is kind of inherent in the state itself? This is a huge challenge. And I, I, I'm broadly in agreement with, with what I, I perceive to be your skepticism of, of this, this kind of, uh, of the project of, of trying to create a unilateral or a monolithic perspective on what education is. The three primary perspectives, each of which is valid. Is, I, I discussed two of them earlier. Uh, you know, one is essentially personal development. Um, and uh, two is uh, like skill development, either um, vocationally or, or from like a humanistic perspective. Um, and then three is um, like the citizen's perspective. Um, like like you, you need to like create a citizenry. Um, and uh, like, I, I, I don't think I can make a knockdown argument that any of these is right. Uh, it, it really depends on like you and your community and your culture and your values. And, and that's the f- just the fundamental question of what this whole thing is even for. And so that even if you were to accept one of those things, like, like the, the platonic perspective, which is know, one label for this, this kind of skills oriented perspective, then there's still tons of reasonable people can disagree style debate about like what skills you should be learning and so on. And so the, the role of things like common core, uh, mostly plays a factor um, in, in the domain of equity uh, where it, it, I, I don't know about that uh, project specifically, but really the project of the education space over the last couple of decades has had just enormous success. Uh, <clears throat> so there's, there's a story that I can tell that has like a, a really sad ending and like kind of a really happy ending. There's this thing called the, the NAEP, the national assessment of educational progress um, that's been running for a really long time. And, uh, Every year, it, it, it collects some sample of performance in, in uh, mathematics and reading and writing from uh, fourth graders, eighth graders, and, and twelfth graders, I think. And uh, it's it's pretty incredible to see how little progress has been made in general uh, after decades of of work in 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 education in say you know the the median eighth grader mathematics abilities and. It's, it's, it's especially galling when, when you look at like how much we spend on education, for instance, uh, you know, the, the combination public private sector, uh, spending is, is, you know, a trillion dollars a year. It's, it's pretty, pretty crazy. Um, but, uh, but so that's the sad part of the story. The happy part of the story is that, uh, the, the achievement gap has closed substantially, uh, and you can define that various ways, but basically if, if you look at, say, subgroups, uh, whether they're demographic or economic subgroups uh, that previously lagged behind by like multiple tens of percentage points, <laughs> they're now lagging behind by, say, you know, single digit uh, percentage points. And most of the story of how that has happened, I shouldn't say most, a large chunk of how that has happened has been this kind of standardization where it's like, well, maybe we can't agree on what education's about. But there are some like core things that maybe many of us can agree it should be about, and we can figure out how to do those well and reproduce them. And then uh, uh, the perspective that many of these people have that I don't necessarily agree with is, you know, all this stuff about personal development and like finding yourself and pursuing your passions or whatever. Like that's all really nice to have when when like your parents can eat, 
but you know, maybe if they can't, then you should focus on like being able to, you know, get a, get a decent job or something. I've been struck by how much the internet has has kind of changed independent learning in a way that, you know, when I was when I was my children's age, so I was in elementary and middle school, um, you, I learned in school and then I would like go to the library and get a book or I would ask my parents something. But that was that was kind of the, the mechanisms I had for learning about a new subject. Um, but – and then there were occasional like educational programs on television, you know, but those were usually pretty lame. Um, and, and then, you know, but now I watch like my kids and – they have YouTube, and YouTube has a lot of stupid stuff on it that they, you know, open up a Chrome tab while they're supposed to be in remote learning right now and watch Minecraft videos instead. But they also can, I catch them, like that topic that caught their eye, they are just like plunging into videos about it, and there's this extraordinary resource. Or there's there's people kind of remixing learning. So there's a, a woman that my wife watches on um, Facebook video who does her makeup while telling true crime stories. And she just tells these like very detailed 20 minute, you know, this is the, this particular person and how like the murders and how they were caught and so on. And she's doing her makeup during it, which is totally bizarre to me, but is like utterly engaging, you know, and you can just like watch and you're learning a lot of stuff. And so it feels like a lot of the most interesting stuff in kind of the way that people can learn, especially like independently motivated people, is is in places that educators or like the education community or the way that we think about traditional learning would see as like YouTube is this frivolous place where you waste time or this woman doing her makeup isn't like real teaching – is that is that like a problem as far as fixing things or is it – I mean because I can see it as the problem on one's hand, but it's also like my kids are spending far more time doing what I would call like genuine independent study than I did when I was their age. It's wonderful. I, I love it. And it, one, one thing I think about is uh, often is, is how much I, I wish I had the three blue, one brown math YouTube channel, uh, Grant Sanderson's channel when I was a kid learning math because – it is so much more interesting and better explained than you know, anything I, I had available to me. So, you know, there's multiple factors that people are excited about, right? So one of them is that this is kind of the Khan Academy story. Like maybe uh, you can find someone who's just really good at explaining stuff and uh, they might be better at explaining the thing than like the random teacher your kid happened to have who's you know, drawn from a large distribution of, of abilities and, um, you know, Maybe the, the median performance of, of all teachers is kind of fine, but every teacher is going to have a thing that they are not so good at explaining, et cetera. Uh, so that there's this kind of like raise the floor type thing. What I find much more interesting is I think what you're alluding to, and that's really like a change in focus or purpose. Uh, a great thing about the video medium is that it accesses uh, emotional factors uh, so much more easily uh, than than text. And, and so that, like, that's one of the things that I love about Three Blue and Brown. Like his love and curiosity and passion uh, for this subject just, just come through in every video. And, and this is true of, of you know, minute physics and you know, all these other things. So uh, a challenge that, that I often hear when I, when I talk to these people is like they're not quite sure how they should think about what success is. Like Grant, for instance, expresses concern or like uncertainty People watch these videos, millions of them watch these Baroque math videos uh, and, and enjoy them, seem to enjoy them. Uh, well, so what? Like, 
is, is that doing anything? And do we care? I mean, so if it's the case that all it's doing is providing entertainment and like there's nothing durable happening, maybe that's fine. Like, cause it shifts people's values uh, towards finding math more interesting. Um, or maybe it's bad and he should try to you know, pr- pursue uh say like efficacy to, to, to a greater degree, however you might define efficacy. Uh, and, and so there's, there's a lot of uncertainty in that space, like even from the creators themselves, you know, as far as not the creators, then you run into all the problems we, we were talking about earlier, where it's, you know, your, your kids are doing this independent study, but like, how do we assess that on, on the summative test at the end of the year? Uh, I don't know. So uh, I guess it isn't valued by the system. We In the pandemic time, we've seen, uh, a lot of things happen with schools. I mean, of course, unfor- many students not being in school and not getting ef- effectively educated via via Zoom. But we've also seen people thinking maybe different ways of doing things, uh, different technologies. Uh, and there's always new educational philosophies out there uh, that come and go in different ways uh, and studies and things like this. Uh, I remember when my aunt was teaching in the 70s, one of the big fads was this open classroom model where they took down the walls of the classrooms and then they were like, that was a really bad idea. We had to put the walls back up. And uh, so it's always churning. And, you know, it's exciting if you think about it. I mean, this is a libertarian question. Of course, it's exciting when you think about the possibilities and what Khan Academy did and all of the different things out there. Eric mentioned YouTube and so many other things. And then whether or not the public school system can be a handmaiden to that situation or a hindrance. And my perspective is it's likely to be a hindrance because of all the swirling interests around it. I mean, even just textbook manufacturers in Texas hold an unbelievable amount of power over our public school system and teachers unions and all this stuff. So, you know, is it, is it something that we should be paring back and like to encourage this kind of thousand flowers blooming? I don't know exactly how to educate kids the best, but we need to get out there experiment. Uh, That's what we should be moving in that model. And then in some sense, public schools, you know, are not something we should rely on to be, to be good for that. I think it really depends on what you value. Uh, So, if what you value is the opportunity for a higher variance outcome, then I, I think I think it's probably not something many people in the space would disagree with. That, that yeah, public schools are like not great for <laughs> innovation, thousand flowers bloom type stuff. I mean, sometimes it happens, but but almost like despite the institutional structures. And um, the reason why I think they wouldn't fight you on that is that they're they're basically tuning for a different thing on the landscape, which is they they want lower variance outcomes. Uh, and they're maybe willing to accept uh, a lower median as a result. Uh, and so, you know, if, if you're a person coming from a position of like relative security or something, like you might be interested in the higher variance outcome because like you can always do something else or, you know, whatever if it fails. So I, I don't quite know how to uh, <clears throat> how to think about that, except that, you know, if, if those are two reasonable uh, stances that people can have, then probably uh, both groups of people should have ways to express that. And maybe that's charter schools for, um, the people who are interested in higher variance outcomes and uh, public schools for the people who are interested in lower variance ones. The challenges here, of course, uh, come in the, the interactions between uh, those those groups and those institutions. There are claims that uh, the existence of charter school programs uh, like has some causative effect uh, on on declining funding for nearby public school programs. Uh, and of those claims, like there are certainly instances where that is actually true, uh, and instances where it is exaggerated. Uh, so it's very difficult to, to piece this all apart. If you look forward 10, 20 years, 
how what does the ideal future of education look like? Like, how do you see what would education look like a couple of decades from now if this all worked out and you were, you know, put in charge of it? <laughs> well, if I had a, a, a concise and compelling vision I could articulate, I think that would be a, a wonderful thing. And you know, much much research would be would be done. I, I can describe some properties I think of what that world might look like. Um, I would love to see a world in which um, students are uh, students are enabled through carefully designed environments that don't necessarily look like schools. They might look more like um, what what are called samba schools uh, in, in Latin America, essentially like community gathering centers, which involve people of all ages. Um, and these, these places contain activities which are uh, naturally appealing. Uh, to the participants and um, participating in those activities uh, kind of natu- naturally and inevitably causes uh, enablement. So the, uh, an, an example that I find very interesting here and in a sort of a secular space is, is Y Combinator. Uh, a very interesting thing about Y Combinator is that it has effectively a curriculum, uh, the existence of the structures of say office hours and meetings with their mentors and, and the, the pitch uh, syllabus and so on, um, all, all of that amounts to a curriculum, but but it's delivered in this uh, kind of naturalistic fashion. Um, and it's it's one where all of the participants are, are working on something that matters very deeply to them. So I'm very excited about the, the schools which are attempting to do something like this for um, K-12 type education um, at Astra is an interesting example. Um, the Con Lab School is another interesting example. So I, I would love to see more of that. There's too many unknowns, really, uh, to be sure. In the second half, the second main property I'd like to see is uh, a, a deeper application of what is known about teaching and learning and doing effectively uh, to these environments. So the, the memory systems that we discussed earlier is, is one. Um, it's a fairly galling one just because the, the core principles have been known for um, depending on how you count over a century or, or at least many decades uh, and yet they, they're, they're still not part of this environment and so it, it just kind of feels like we're leaving stuff on the table you know to the extent that, that kids are, are struggling to you know memorize some list of historical facts or vocabulary or uh, the, the, the organic molecules uh, that they have to know for the test like that's essentially just heat loss it's, it's just wasted effort um, and it, do, it doesn't have to be there. Um, but the memory thing is like only one example, I think, of, of like a large set of cognitive augmentations, which are possible even just based on what we understand right now. Uh, and if we build those augmentations, then I think they will help us understand much more. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy Free Thoughts, make sure to rate and review us in Apple Podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. Free Thoughts is produced by Landry Ayers. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, visit us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.